Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethacoupis. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place by accelerating scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and the world. In 1901, sponge divers off the coast of Greece retrieved an ancient astronomical calculating machine from a 2,000-year-old Roman shipwreck. Known as the Antikythera Mechanism, this geared device could predict solar eclipses and track the four-year calendar of the Olympic Games. More than a 1,000 years ahead of its time, the mechanism raises the question of why didn't the ancients experience an industrial revolution? Today's guest on Faster Please, the podcast, is author Helen Dale, who explored what an industrialized Roman Empire might have looked like in her 2017 novel, The Kingdom of the Wicked Rules, and then in its 2018 sequel, The Kingdom of the Wicked Order. Helen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jim. It's great to be here. I love science fiction and speculative fiction. Your Kingdom of the Wicked books raise such an interesting question. What would have happened? Had Jesus emerged in a Roman empire that had gone through an industrial revolution, what led you to ask this question and then pursue that answer through these two books? Well, as I wrote in the essay, there is an essay in the back of um, book one, um, which is I call an author's note, which is basically a set of notes about what I brought to the book when I was thinking. And that has been published elsewhere by the Cato Institute. I go into these um, questions, but the main one, the one that really occurred to me was that I thought that what would happen if if, uh, Jesus emerged in a modern society now, uh, rather than um, the the historic society he emerged in is I didn't think it would turn into something hippy-dippy like Jesus of Montreal. I thought it would turn into Waco or to the People's Temple. And that wasn't necessarily a function of the leader of the group being a bad person. I mean, clearly Jim Jones was a very bad person. But the Waco story is actually much more complex and much messier and involves, you know, a militarised police force and, you know, tanks attacking the buildings and all of this kind of thing. But whatever happened with it, it was going to go badly and it was going to end in violence and there would be a showdown and a confrontation. And it would also take on, I thought, I didn't say this in the essay, but um, I, I thought at the time it would take on a very American cast because that is the way new religious movements tend to collapse in the, tend to blow up or collapse in the United States. New religious movements in Australia or the United Kingdom or parts of the British Caribbean uh, don't, follow that pattern. Uh, They tend to end in litigation. I mean, like Scientology in in the UK started to come unstuck largely because it couldn't prove it was a religion in the in the traditional sense of what is a religion and so the whole thing just landed in the superior appellate courts of 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 the united kingdom and it kind of faded as a result so you didn't get this showdown this very dramatic showdown that you associate with new religious movements in the united states so initially i thought i'm not going to be able to do this it's not going to work it's a fascinating story but um other people have tried to address it in 
you know, Jesus Christ Superstar, Jesus Montreal, you know, all of that kind of thing. Um, and I don't want to write an American story, partly because I'm not American, whilst I've travelled to the United States over many years, going back to when I was a teenager, and I work for, for Liberty Fund. I, I'm a senior writer at Law and Liberty, which is an American magazine, so I'm a staff writer there. Um, I'm not American. I just don't have that sort of deep cultural knowledge of the United States. The countries that I can write about with deep cultural knowledge are the United Kingdom, generally the four home nations. I'm pretty good on the Republic of Ireland because that's where my mother came from. Very strong on Scotland because that's where my dad came from. And also Australia, which was where I was born and, and grew up. And so I was thinking this idea through my head. I would like to do a retelling of the Jesus story, but how do I do it so it doesn't become math? It doesn't work. And so what I decided to do was rather than bring Jesus forward and put him now, I would put us back to the time of Jesus, but take with that us back our technology and our knowledge, but always mediated by the fact that Roman civilization was different from modern civilization, not in the sense of, you know, human beings have changed or, or that kind of thing. We're all still the same primates that we were, have been for a couple hundred thousand years or even longer, but in the sense that their moral, underlying moral values and beliefs about the way the world should work were different, which I thought would have technological effects. So the big technological effect in Kingdom of the Wicked is they're much better at biology and the, uh, the, the and veterinary science, the biosciences and the animal sciences, they're much better at. They're much weaker at communications. Our society has put all its effort into comms. Their society is much more likely to put it into medicine. To give you an idea, uh, for the use of opioids to relieve the pain of childbirth is, is Roman. And it was rediscovered by James Young Simpson at the University of Edinburgh. And he very famously, it's described, you can go and see the panels all up about this in the Edinburgh Medical School. Um, he used the formula in one of the Roman medical writers and he actually got it wrong at first because, and, and to be fair, when you see it being done in, in, in Roman society, you've got a woman sitting in a set of grosser scales big grosser scales to weigh out aubergines or something like that in order to get her weight right because the dose is the poison. And James Young Simpson actually describes how he got the dosage for the formula slightly wrong with his assistant. And this poor young man finished up underneath, underneath James Young Simpson's kitchen table with his heels drumming on the floor because he'd been given too much. You know, so this is something that existed in antiquity, was lost and then was rediscovered by a 19th century scientist. So I made a very deliberate decision to, this is a society that has not pursued technological advancement in the same way as us. It's also why their motor vehicles look like the Soviet era ones with rotary engines. It's why their big aircraft are kind of like Antonov's, the big Ukrainian aircraft that we've all been reading about since the, the, the war has started in Ukraine. So in some respects, there are bits of their culture that, are look, that look more Soviet or at least Britain in the 1950s, uh, you know, sort of Clement Attlee's quite centralised post-war settlement, health service, you know, uh, public good kind of Soviet-style, soft Soviet. It's not the nasty Stalinist sort, but like late Soviet, so kind of Brezhnev and, and, the, and the last part of, of Khrushchev. A few people did say that. You're like, your military parades, they look like the Soviet Union. Yes, that was deliberate. The effort's gone to medicine. 
it's an amazing bit of, of world building. I mean, that's a phrase people talk about a lot. Uh, but I was sort of astonished by sort of uh, the depth and the scale of it. Um, you know, and as I read it, I kept trying to think about like, where did she pull this from? Where did she pull that from? Is this is this a genre that you had you had an interest in previously? Are there other works that you took inspiration from? Uh, there's a particular writer of speculative fiction I admire greatly. His name is S.M. Sterling, and he wrote a series of books. I haven't read every book he, he wrote, um, but he wrote a series of books called the Draka series, D-R-A-K-A, that's spelt. And it's speculative fiction, once again, based on a point of departure where the colonists who finished up in South Africa finish up using the resources of South Africa. But they, for a range of reasons, which he, he sets out very carefully in his books, they avoid the resource curse, the classic economist resource curse. And so certainly in terms of a popular writer, he, um, he's published with Bain Books. He's a very popular writer of, of speculative fiction and science fiction. So he was the one that I read and thought, if I can do this as well as him, I will be very pleased. However, my background in terms of what I have written in the past myself and in terms of the way I was educated, I'm a, I'm a lawyer now, obviously, um, but I read classics for my first degree. But of course, you can't make any money out of classics. All it's any good for is, is for translating you know, school mottos and, and, Romans, and reading Roman smut. <laughs> you know, it's like Boris Johnson. Why is Boris, why was Boris Johnson such a smutty prime minister? The classics degree might be a clue. And so my education was conventionally literary and I was widely read in that sort of educated British public school sense. So um, I read all the classics. I probably didn't read as much science fiction as most people would in high school unless it was a literary author like Margaret Atwood or George Orwell. I, I just find bad writing rebarbative and a lot of science fiction struggles with, with bad writing. So this is, the, this is the problem, of course, that Douglas Adams famously identified, and that's one of the reasons why he wrote the Hitchhiker's books, was to show that you could combine science fiction with good writing. In all uh, good works of, you know, speculative fiction, all, the alt-history sort of variant, there's an interesting jumping-off point. I would imagine you had a real eureka moment when you sort of figured out, like, what your jumping-off point would be to make this all plausible tell me about mm. that well yes so i did i i mean once i realized that points of departure hugely mattered i then went and read people like uh philip k dick's man in the high castle and so the the point of departure for him is the assassination of roosevelt um i went and read uh ssgb len dayton great great british spycraft writer but also a writer of speculative fiction and in that case we britain loses the battle of britain and Operation Sea Lion, the putative land invasion of, of the UK is successful. And I really started to think about this and I'm going, okay, how are you going to do this point of departure? And how are you going to deal with certain economic issues? I'm not an economist, but I used to practice in corporate finance. So I've got the sort of numerical appreciation for, for economics. If I, I can read an economics paper that's very maths heavy um, because that's my skill based on working in corporate finance. And I, I knew from, from corporate finance and from corporate law that there are certain things that you just can't do, um, you can't achieve in terms of economic progress unless you abolish slavery. 
basically very, very basic stuff like human labour power never loses its comparative advantage if you, if you have just a market flooded with slaves. So you can have lots of good science and technology in an excellent legal system like the Romans did. And they, they reach that point economists talk about of takeoff and it just never happens. Just they miss doesn't quite happen. And a number of civilizations, this has happened. It's happened with the Song Dynasty in China. Steve Davies has written a lot about the, the Song Dynasty. And they went through the same thing. They got just get to that takeoff point and then it just fizzled out. And in China, it was to do with, with, with serfdom, basically. So these are things that are very destructive to economic progress. So you have to come up with a society that decides that slavery is really shitty. And the only way to do that is for them to get them hooked on the idea of using a substitute for human labour power. And that means I had to push technological innovation back to the Middle Republic. So what I've done for my point of departure is at the siege of Syracuse, I have Archimedes surviving instead of being killed. He was actually just he was doing mathematical doodles outside his classroom in uh, according to the various records of Roman writers. And he was killed by some rampaging Roman soldier and basically the Marcellus, the general who had been told to capture Archimedes and all his students and all their kids. So you can see Operation Paperclip in the Roman mind. You can see the thinking, oh no, we want this fellow to be our DARPA guy. <laughs> you can see the Roman thinking was all that, that's, a, that's just a brilliant leap there. I love that. And so what I've done is that doesn't, that, that is the beginning of the point of departure. So you have the Romans hauling all these clever Greek scientists and their families off and, and taking them to Rome and basically doing a Roman version of DARPA and, you know, Operation Paperclip DARPA, you know, you do all the science and, and have complete freedom to do all the, because the Romans would have let them do it. I mean, this is the thing, though, the Romans are your classic cashed up bogans, as Australians call it. They had lots of money. They were willing to throw it at things like this. They were willing to throw things, uh, money at things like this and then really run with it. And, I mean, obviously you have to start to do some other things as well. Because you really needed both. Because you needed, I think, as you write at one point, you need to create kind of a machine culture. So you sort of needed the science and innovation, but also the, the, the getting rid of the slavery part of it. They really both work hand in hand. Yes, it's, it, these two have to go together. I mean, I, and I do remember I, I got commissioned to write a few articles in, in the British press complete where I didn't get to mention the name of Kingdom of the Wicked or any of my novels or research for this. But where people were trying to argue that the British Empire had made an enormous amount of money out of slavery and it had, and then as a subsidiary argument to that, trying to argue that that led to industrialization in the UK. And I just remember sitting there thinking every single one of the people making this argument must have failed their maths O level because it is just enumerate. I mean, I have had clients in my life, people who don't have a natural head for figures, where I've had to sit down and explain basic mathematical reasoning, like what's mezzanine debt or something like that, as though they're a five-year-old. And I wrote a number of articles in the press, just like going through why this was actually impossible. And I didn't use any fancy economic terminology or anything like that there's just no point in it but just explaining that no no no, this is this doesn't work like that you might get individually wealthy people like Crassus who made a lot of his money from slavery although he also made a lot from insurance because he set up private fire brigades that was one of the things that Crassus did you know insurance premiums so you because that's Roman law invention the concept of insurance and so you uh, and that you get one of the Islamic leaders in Mali 
King Musa, same thing, slaves, you know, and people try to argue that they were, that, you know, they're the entirety of their country's wealth depended on slavery. But what you get is you get individually very wealthy people, but you don't get any propagation of the wealth through the wider society, which is what industrialization produced in Britain and the Netherlands and then in Germany and then in America and elsewhere. Um, so yes, I had to work in the machine culture with the abolition of slavery. And the thing is the machines had to come first. If I did the abolition of slavery first, it didn't, there was nothing there to feed it. You know, I mean, one of the things that helped Britain was Somerset's case and in Scotland, Knight and Wedderburn saying, you know, the air of, uh, the air of England is too pure for a slave to breathe. You know, that kind of thinking. But that was what I realised. It was the slavery issue. I couldn't solve the slavery issue unless I took the technological development back earlier than the period when the Roman Republic was flooded with slaves. The George Mason University economist Mark Koyama said if you had taken Adam Smith and brought him back to Rome, a lot of it would have seemed very recognizable, like sort of a commercial trading society. So I, I would assume that that element um, also uh, also pretty important in, in that world building. You had something to work with there. Yes, because my actual introduction to Stoicism, and I think I've got it on the bookshelves behind me here somewhere. It's one of the Liberty Fund books anyway. But I'm not, I mean, I've read some Stoic stuff because I did a classics degree. So, of course, it means you have to read, be able to read in Latin. But I'd never really taken that much of an interest in it. My interest tended to be in the literature. So I, you know, Ovid and, and Virgil and Apuleius and the people who wrote novels. And then the interest in law, I always had an advantage, particularly as a Scots lawyer, because Scotland is a mixed system, that I could read all the Roman sources that they were drawing on in the original. It made me a better practitioner. But the uh, uh, my first introduction to thinking seriously about Stoicism and how it relates to commerce and thinking that commerce can actually be a good and honourable thing to do is actually in Adam Smith's, not in Wealth of Nations, but in Moral Sentiments where, I mean, Adam Smith actually goes through and quotes a lot of the Roman Stoic writers, you know, Missonius, Ruthus, and Epictetus, and people like that, where they talk about it, it's possible to have a, a something that's quite base, which is being greedy and wanting to have a lot of money, but realising that in order to uh, get your lot of money or to do really well for yourself, you actually have to <laughs> be quite a decent person and not a shit, you know, and and there were certain things that the, the uh, Romans had, had applied this thinking to like the Samian where that beautiful red ceramic that you see you know, and the, it's uniform all through the Roman Empire because they they were manufacturing it on a factory basis and when you come across the factories they look like these long narrow buildings with high well-lit windows and you're just sort of sitting there going my goodness somebody dumped Manchester in Italy <laughs> this, this kind of thing and so my introduction to that kind of stoic thinking was actually via Adam Smith. And then I went back and read the material in the original and realized where Adam Smith was getting those arguments from. And that's when I thought, ah, right. Okay. Now I've got my abolitionists. I have my abolitionists. This is in large part, a book about, about law. Yes. So you had to create a, a believable legal system that did not exist, unlike perhaps the commercial nature of Rome. So how did you begin to work this from the ground up? 
Well, I mean, to be fair, I made my life a bit easier by using the Romans. They had a very developed and sophisticated legal system. And I was very fortunate to have spent a number of years as a legal practitioner in Scotland because it's actually Scots law that most resembles Roman law as it existed in the first and second century AD. Uh, you, many uh, Americans will be aware that the, the procedure in a country like, say, France or Spain is inquisitorial, the inquisitorial procedure where the judge does a lot of the questioning. And the, the court, you don't have the, the, the argument, you don't have the barristers dressed in the odd clothes with the wigs and that kind of thing that people associate with Britain. Now, that inquisitorial procedure is not Roman. It was not invented by the Romans at any point in their history. It comes later. It is partly a byproduct of canon law. And so it's a procedure that the Catholic Church developed itself, canon law, and it was later applied to substantive Roman law that was developed by pagans. And that meant that basically the European Union countries diverged down a different path, both procedurally and in terms of substantive law. Countries like the Netherlands or Scotland, they're, they're the two standout examples. They'd never codified their law, so they didn't follow Napoleon over the codification cliff. And they also retained the ancient Roman procedure, which was the same as the English common law. It was adversarial with two barristers and a witness box and a jury box, although 15 jurors, as in Scotland, 15 for a criminal trial, 12 for a civil trial. So I used the legal system and I have a trial of, of, of Jesus that's basically very familiar if you've practised in Scotland. It's very familiar to a Scottish lawyer. But there are some things that I have kept from classical antiquity that do still persist in modern civilian systems. Like there is a scene that many common lawyers find, and Scottish lawyers would as well, find very alarming, which is where Pilate's doing his own research as a judge on this matter. You know, and he's getting all these briefs of evidence and he's you know making telephone calls to whoever's running the running the legion up in this part of Judea about you know where can I get some further information about this now that's a role that's known as the examining magistrate which is the English translation of a French term that did exist in ancient Rome so where the judge was allowed to do research of his, on his own motion which has never been permitted at common law so what I had to do was I had to take what I knew of the ancient system what I knew of its substantive law, all the substantive law used in, in the book is, is Roman, written by actual Roman jurists. This, but to be fair, this is not hard to do. This is a proper legal system. It's a, it, there are only two great lawgiver civilizations in human history. The Romans were one of them, the English were the other. And so what I had to do was take substantive Roman law, use my knowledge of practicing in a mixed system that did resemble the ancient Roman system. So use, I used Scotland, where I'd lived, lived and worked, and then putting elements back into it that existed in antiquity that still exist in, say, France, but are very foreign, particularly to common lawyers. Like, I'd, I mean, I had lawyer friends who read both novels because obviously it appeared, you have a courtroom drama. A courtroom drama appeals to lawyers. These are the kind of books, particularly if it's written by another lawyer. So you do things like get the laws of evidence right and, you know, and stuff like that. There, I, I mean, I know there are lawyers who cannot watch The Wire, for example, because it gets the laws of evidence in, in, in the US, in this case, wrong. And they just finish up throwing shoes at the television because they get really annoyed about getting it wrong. So what, what I did was I took great care to get the laws of evidence right and to make sure that I didn't use 
common law rules of evidence. For example, the Romans didn't have a prohibition, they didn't have the rule against hearsay. So you'll notice that there's all this hearsay in the trial, but you'll also notice a mechanism. Pilate's very good at sorting out what's just gossip and what is likely to have some substantive truth to it. So that's a... Um, that's a classic borrowing from Roman law because they didn't have the rule against hearsay. That's common law rule. I also use corroboration a lot. Corroboration is very important in Roman law and it's also very important in Scots law. And it's basically a, a two witness rule. And I did things that once again, that to show the sort of cultural differences between um, the, the two great legal systems. Cornelius, the, the equivalent, the Roman equivalent of, of the principal crown prosecutor, Cornelius is the, that character. And he's obsessed with getting a confession. Obsessed. And that is deeply Roman. And that applies to all forms of Roman law. The ancient Romans were like it. It matters in more, enormously in Scots law now in a way that it matters, doesn't matter in the English common law or in the Commonwealth or in the United States. Um, and he um, and it matters to this day in France. And it also shows you, because I'm I love Hayek and path dependency and evolved orders and all of this. I just think Hayek's just wonderful. <laughs> I'll just sit and read Hayek casually because I just find him so interesting. Um, and one of the is a genuine evolved order example in that lovely Hayekian sense is that. One of the reasons why it took so long for European countries, even after Napoleon, after the rationalization of Roman law and the development of proper civil codes, and often areas where their law was much better than the common law, like for example, the status of women is just much higher in Roman law. You don't have coverture and all of this awful stuff. Um, but the reason it took so long for all those countries to abolish torture whereas the English had abolished torture something like 300 years before, is precisely because of the obsession with confessions. And the Roman lawyers going back to antiquity called a confession the queen of proofs. And of course, if, if confessions are just the most wonderful thing, then it's just so tempting, so, so tempting to, you know, beat the snot out of the accused and get your bloody confession and job done. Whereas right from the beginning, you can read in Cook, um, or Blackstone, and even before that, going back to Bracton, you know, very, very early common law writers, they're going, mm, nah. I think you got that by belting the snot out of someone with the length of rubber hose. I hate to break it to you. So this is just one of those things where you get that evolutionary divergence in two legal systems that goes back to like the fourth century BC. The topic of the Industrial Revolution is one which has been a frequent one, in my writings and, and, and podcasts. And one big difference um, between our industrial revolution and the one you posit in the book is that there was a lot of competition in Europe. You had a lot of countries and there was an incentive to permit disruptive innovation. It, it, where in the past, the proponents of the status quo had the advantage at some point, countries realize, oh, for both for commerce and military reasons, we need to become more technologically advanced. So we're going to allow inventors and entrepreneurs to come up with new ideas, even if it does alter that status quo. But that's not the case with Rome. It was a powerful empire that I don't think really had 
any competitors, both in, in the real world and in your book. That's probably why it didn't, or part, that and the slavery, um, shuttle slavery, is probably why it didn't finish up having an industrial revolution. And it's one of the reasons why I had to locate the innovation. It had to be in the military first, because the military was so intensely respected in Roman society um, that if, if you'd have got the military, the Roman military leadership coming up with, say, gunpowder or explosives or that kind of thing, the, the response from everybody else would have been, good, we win. Right. You know, this is a good thing. It had to come from the military, which is why um, you get that slightly Soviet look to it. Um, there, is a, there is a reason for that. It's more prosperous. The society is more prosperous because it's a free market society because the Romans were a free market society. They, all their law was all, all sort of trade-oriented. It's like, like, like English law. So that, that's one of those things where the two societies were just really similar. But in terms of technological innovation, I had to locate it in the army. It had to be the armed forces first. Um, it couldn't come from another part of society. It had to be the armed forces because I genuinely do think the the conservatism and not so much the conservatism, but because lots of societies can be quite conservative. Britain can be, was conservative in the 19th, 18th and 19th century. But the, the problem of stasis, which is where you get a single unitary authority over a large geographical area, the only way that that could have been defeated for, for Romans is for the, the honor and the glory and the skills to be shown, first of all, amongst the military, then they would have propagated. I don't think it would have been possible from any other part of society. In your world, are there entrepreneurs? I mean, what, what does the business world look like? Well, I do try to show you, you know, people who are very economically, very commercially minded and very um, economically oriented. And one of the reasons I set the two up against each other, you've got the character of Pilate, the real historical figure, who is a Tory, who is a traditional Tory lawyer, who has come up through the, all the traditional Toryism and his family's on the land and so on and so forth. So he's a Tory. But Linnaeus, who he went to law school with, um, who is the defence counsel for the Jesus character, Yeshua ben Yusuf, is a Whig. And his mother was a freed slave. And his family are in business and commerce. You know, they're not in, they haven't bought the land. And I actually wrote a, a well, I didn't write a short story there. A lot of these books finished up on the cutting room floor, the world building. And there is a piece that was published in a book called Shapers of Worlds, Volume 2, which is a science fiction anthology ed edited by a Canadian science fiction author called Ed Willett. And one of the pieces that finished up on the cutting room floor in, and that went into Shapers of Worlds is a description of Linnaeus's family background, which unfortunately was removed. You get pilots, but you don't get Linnaeus's. And Linnaeus's family background, his dad's the factory owner. Okay, the factory, the factory making cloth. And Linnaeus's father, I used, I built his character in, in, the, in the, this piece that was cut out of the book. And I, I loved it so much. I'm very annoyed actually with my, I was annoyed with my publisher when they said this piece has to go. And I did one of those snotty foot stamping author things. And so I was delighted when this Canadian publisher came to me and said, oh, can we have a piece of your writing for a science fiction anthology? And I thought, oh good, I get to publish the Linnaeus dad story in Shapers of Worlds. And I actually based Linnaeus's dad, the angel, as he's referred to, Angelus, the angel, um, in King, the Kingdom of the Wicked books and his personality 
is brought out very strongly. I actually based him on John Rylands as Manchester's John Rylands, the man who gave his name to the Rylands Library in Manchester. He was meant to be the portrait of the entrepreneurial Manchester industrialist. And I, I, I to this day, you know, authors always have regrets. You don't always get to um, win the argument with your publisher or your editor. I am sorry that that story was taken, all that background, that world building was taken out of Kingdom of the Wicked and finished up having to be published elsewhere in an anthology because it provided that entrepreneurial story that you're talking about, the person, the factory owner who becomes, the, who is the self-made man who endows libraries and technical schools and, and trains apprentices and, and has that sort of innovative quality that you associate that is described so beautifully in Matt Ridley's book, you know, How Innovation Works, which is full of people like that. And this book as well, I've just bought, I've just bought Arts and Minds, which is about the Royal Society of Arts. So, I mean, so this is one of those authorial regrets that the entrepreneur character wasn't properly fleshed out in the two published books, Kingdom of the Wicked, book one and book two. Um, and you have to get Shapers of Worlds if you want to find out about Linnaeus's industrialist dad. Is this a world you'd want to live in? Not for me, no. I mean, this is the, this is the thing that, I mean, I'm a classically trained lawyer. Yeah, so classics first, then law. And I made it a society that works. You know, I don't write dystopias. I have a great deal of admiration for Margaret Atwood and George Orwell, who are the two greatest writers of, of dystopias, in my view, in, in contemporary and not just contemporary fiction, probably going back over a couple of hundred years. Those two are, have really got it Where, when it comes to this vision of, a, of horror you know, the boot stamping on the human face forever. I, I greatly admire their skill, but those are not the books I write. So the society I wrote about in Kingdom of the Wicked is a society that works. But one of the things I deliberately did with the Yeshua ben Yusuf character and his early, what were his early Christian followers, where I've, and the reason I've taken so much time to flesh them out as real characters and believable people but also the, the character of Caiaphas, who is somewhere in between the, the Romans and, and the, the, this insurgent group of Jews, basically. You know, so he's, he's in this very awkward position. He and Esther, his wife, are trying to occupy this middle ground. And they struggle, the two of them do. They do their best, but they struggle. Um, but I, what I, I did that because the, the values that Christianity has given to the West... Um, were often absent in the Roman world. They just didn't think that way. They thought about things differently. Now, some of those Christian values were pretty horrible. It's fairly clear that the Romans were right about homosexuality and abortion and the Christians were wrong, that kind of thing. You know, so they, that's where they were more liberal. But you will have noticed, I, I don't turn the book into Gattaca uh, because I try to keep this in the background because obviously someone else has written Gattaca. It's an excellent film. It's very thought provoking. I didn't want to do that again. It's kept in the background, but it is, it is obvious. You don't even really need to read between the lines that this is a society that engages in eugenics. You notice that all the Roman families have three children or two children, and there's always a mix of sexes. You never have all boys or all girls. You know what they're doing. They're doing sex selective abortions like upper class, Indians and Chinese people do now, where you've, you've now dealt with the problem of not enough girls among those posh people, but they still want a, a mixture of the two. You notice that the Romans have got irritatingly perfect teeth 
and their health is all very good. And people mock Siler, one of the characters, because his teeth haven't been fixed. He's got what in Britain get called NHS teeth. You know, so he hasn't got, he hasn't got straightened teeth uh, because he genuinely comes from a really, really poor white trash, their equivalent of a white trash background. And so I have put that in there deliberately to, to foil those values off each other, to try to show what a world would look like where there are certain values that will just never come to the fore. So you've got all these- And, and as you mentioned industry, how those, how those values also might influence which areas of technology that yes. society might focus on, which, is, which I think is a great point. Yeah, so I, I did that quite deliberately. And I wanted to, I had friends of mine who read it. Um, there, there is a scene in the, in the first book in Kingdom of the Wicked where Linnaeus, who's the Whig, you know, the nice Whig, you know, the lovely Whig who believes in, you know, civil rights and justice and, uh, and you know, and starts sort of sounding awfully Martin Luther King-ish at various points and that kind of thing. You know, so he's, he's, he's the, the most likable form of, 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 progressive stoic kind of Roman ideas. And when he encounters a child that the parents have kept alive, a disabled child, which in his society would just be put down at birth like Peter Singer, they have Peter Singer laws, um, he's horrified and he doesn't even know if it's human. Right. And, you know, and there's this awful scene where he's yes. kind of trying to crawl backwards out of, out of and, and yet this is a man who he's supposed to you know, be, be, be doing what, what's known in Scots law as a precognition, you know, getting a witness statement from. And, and the reason he's coming apart is because, I'm sorry, but in Roman society, a, an ugly disabled child, if the abortion didn't work or they didn't know that that was what was going to happen, even if it was a wanted child, big needle, put down, end. Yeah, so I have tried, I've kept it, I've not foregrounded that stuff because I'm, I'm still a literary novelist. I believe in well-rounded, believable characters that are different from each other, that aren't cardboard cutouts, you know, that are morally complex and all the classic things that people associate with literary fiction. But the society is not our society. And I was a bit alarmed. And I actually wrote a piece about this a couple of years ago for um, Law and Liberty for Liberty Fund. The number, of, because I'm popular in Australia, I got you know, sold multiple thousands of copies and so people write to authors you know the author's post back and I got this letters sent to me by people who desperately wanted to live in the society that I had created and I also got a lot of letters from women who desperately wanted to shag Cornelius the principal crown prosecutor and this was interesting I mean I'd got an enormous amount of correspondence with with the hand that signed the paper but it was so much with the hand that signed the paper that I was placed in the position of just being able to ignore it I just wasn't opening it it was just too much whereas with Kingdom of the Wicked it, there was less of it. it it was sort of more hundreds of items of mail rather than tens of thousands and it was interesting it was psychologically interesting rather than sort of repellent or people disagreeing with my politics or whatever. And I did find that people wanted to live in this society. And I just sort of thought, hmm, there are a lot more people out there who clearly agree with things like eugenics, Peter Singer laws, um, a society that has absolutely no welfare state, none. You know, th there, are, there are people who clearly find that 
kind of society attractive. And also the authoritarianism, the, the, the Soviet style, the Soviet style veneration of the military. A lot of people quite clearly quite like that. And, and clearly, clearly like this a very orderly society with there's lots of rules and everybody knows where they stand. But even when the state is really, really very powerful, I deliberately put a scene in there, for example, where pilots expectorating about compulsory vaccinations because he's a Roman and he thinks compulsory vaccinations save lives and he doesn't give a shit about your bodily integrity. You know, that I deliberately put that stuff in there. And maybe people just get carried away when they read a novel. Yeah, and yeah, right. it is meant to be exciting. It's an exciting story. It has an exciting ending. You know, I believe in the traditional plot craft skill of the popular novelist. Even my first novel does this. I want people to read my books. I don't want to be arty-farty and experimental and put them off. And so maybe people just get carried away by the story. They, get, they, they find people like Sinara or Cornelius interesting and they just follow their story. Right. But I did try to leave lots of Easter eggs, to use a gaming expression in there, to make it clear that this is a society that's a bit Gattaca-ish. <laughs> I did that for yeah. a reason. I don't know if there's a sequel in, in mind, uh, but... Do you think that this world eventually sort of Christianizes? And, and two, uh, if this is what the world looks like 2,000 years ago, what would that world look like today? I haven't thought of the answer to the first one, I must admit. Um, so I don't really know the answer to that. But in the second one, I did discuss this in quite a bit of detail with my then partner and and. Uh, she said, I honestly think that that sort of aggressiveness and militarism, they will finish up conquering the planet and then it'll start looking like a not nice version of Star Trek. It'll be, it won't be the Federation. It will be much more likely to be Khan and the Klingons and that, they'll start looking really, really Klingon, basically. That was her comment at the time and I thought. I have a more militaristic version of Star Trek. Yeah, but but sort of very militarized and and sort of not you know the prime directive or any of the sort of because obviously Star Trek is very much an American conception of what of Americans in space. Um, you know, my Romans in space would look much more like the Centauri out of Babylon Five or um, the Klingons in Star Trek. You know, they would be much more aggressive and have a be a lot more ambiguous. Well, I don't know how of much of a Star Trek fan, but of course there's the mirror universe, which kind of looks like that, which we have yeah. like the evil Kirk and the evil Spock where they're still yeah. advanced, but you know, there's like a Praetorian guard for the captain and you know, you sort of. All of that. Yes. So I, I, I so I hadn't really thought about the first question, but the second question I thought, yeah, I think this, this, if this persists into the future, imagining a hypothetical future, then I think you're going to be dealing with people who are really, really quite scary. Finally, uh, are, are, you're not apparently you're not working on a sequel to this book, but what are you? Are you working on another book? Are you? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm actually being pursued at the moment by a British publisher who I won't drop into it because otherwise if I say the name, then I will never, never be forgiven. And then I, they will insist on me writing a book. I'm actually being pursued and working up a proposal at the moment with my agent at the request of, of a story British publisher for, for, for another book. But it's not a sequel to Kingdom of the Wicked. I, I, I did get a very strong sense once I had written book one and book two of Kingdom of the, of the Wicked. And the rules and order is a little Hayek tribute. I'm sure yes. you noticed that. 
Um, yes, I just, I, there's so much, anybody who's read lots of Hayek, there are no quotes from him in anywhere, but you will see the thinking is pervasive. This is a person who's read law legislation and liberty and digested it and, and used it in books. Um, I don't want to go back to that world. I want to write another book. I was very surprised that I finished up writing a two book series, even for that long. I mean, my first novel, The Hand That Signed the Paper, was quite short. It's only 60,000 words. It's a short novel, whereas these are massive fat blockbusters, 140,000 words each. And I have a reputation, because outside of my three novels, I, I mainly write literary nonfiction and legal commentary, quite technical non-fiction, the, the sort of the Andrew Sullivan style of writer, I suppose, you, you, you have in the US. And so when I go to write fiction and, and go away from being the technical commentator who does legal things, um, I, I like to go into this completely different world. And I feel I've spent enough time in the world of Kingdom of the Wicked and I want to do something completely different for, for novel number four. I'm never going to be the world's most super productive novelist. I, I think that I may finish up in my life writing maybe another two, you know, the one that I'm working on now that I'm being pursued for to write now by a British publisher and maybe one more after that. And the rest of my time will be taken off, taken up doing things like writing for Law and Liberty as their senior writer and, and doing sort of technical commentary on non-fiction things. Um, I mean, I see people, I mean, there are authors out there who don't write nonfiction, to be fair, which is very revealing. I mean, I look at Stephen King. That man writes a doorstopper of a book every time he sits down to have a hot meal. It's, <laughs> it's just stunning, incredible. Stunning. How does he do it? I'm not that person. <laughs> Helen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me.